Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest edition of Infection Control Matters. It's Brett Mitchell here and Phil Russo. G'day, Phil. G'day, Brett. How are you? Good, good. And we have a, another wonderful guest with us today. We do indeed. I'd like to welcome Simon Witz. Simon is the Director of Engineering at VA Sciences, and we've gotten to know Simon over the past few months with uh, through our work with some of the quarantine facilities here. And... Um, Simon, um, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Brett. Hi, Phil. Thank you for inviting me on. Thanks for your time, Simon. Some of the work um, that you do, and I think I can speak safely on behalf of Brett, has been fascinating um, <laughs> for us, uh, re- a real revelation. And a massive help, a massive help to and, us and too. Yeah, to, huge know. help. Yeah. Um, but before we dive into, into, um, into some of those issues, perhaps I was just wondering if you could let us know how you got into this field, how you got involved with, um, with ventilation and, and, then, and, and then infection prevention. Uh, a, a good story. Um, I like started, a good story. <laughs> I, 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 uh, I started out in building services engineering, um, which is really what I am. I'm a building services engineer, um, designer. Um, it just so happened the first consultancy I worked for when I left university, um, right at the end of the 1980s, um, was a, uh, a healthcare specialist, um, DSSR, and they, they designed hospitals. And it's just one of those things. Once you start designing them, you never stop. You tend to move to another consultancy that's also designing hospitals because they want people who've got experience in designing hospitals. So really for the past 34, 35 years, I've been uh, a healthcare designer, healthcare hospital designer um, across the world. So UK, Australia and beyond. And and really, that's the space that I've played in, in terms of design. Um, And if you think about just, you know, just an average hospital, the the various areas within the hospital that require ventilation to be controlled for a number of reasons, mostly thermal comfort, but also for for infection control in areas like isolation rooms, operating theatres, or there are areas where you want to make sure you've got high cleanliness, CSSD, um, and those sort of areas. So ventilation has always been a, a part of what, what I do. And also uh, I've been one of the engineers who's tended to adopt tools like CFD, computer, um, computational fluid dynamics, to allow us to visualise and actually see what the air is doing in, in a design. So uh, that's really how I, I've ended up in this space. Um, but really, I'm a, I'm a hospital designer, so so it's not just not just ventilation that's that's uh, keeping me busy. We're going to come to some computer simulations perhaps a little bit later when we talk about cars or taxis or buses and various things. But um, but just on just for a moment, just thinking about hotels as a, a place for quarantine, we 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 know all the challenges associated with those well and truly. But um, perhaps you could just talk to us about what is what's this? Why why is the standard ventilation system in something like a hotel not suitable for uh, for hotel for for quarantine of things that are transmitted by the air? That's a really good question. We we got involved with the, uh, the Victorian program just after the second outbreak in Victoria, which was because of a breach within hotel quarantine. And uh, they asked us to come and have a look and see what we could do with the ventilation system to see if we could improve things. Um, now, your average hotel 
Well, firstly, what we discovered in looking at about 14, 15 hotels is there's no such thing as an average hotel. <laughs> um, yeah. you, you wouldn't really credit the fact that you can have a number of rooms feeding onto a corridor. And of the 15 hotels we looked at, 14 had different systems. Mm. You wouldn't think it's possible to do that, but it is. But the majority of them all had one thing in common, which is they're there really to keep you comfortable. They're not there to look at which way the air goes. They're there to control smells from the ensuite, from the bathroom, and keep the person in the room as comfortable as possible, usually as quiet as possible. That tends to vary with the quality of hotel. So um, when we started to get involved and started looking at these hotels, what, one of the first things we, we discovered is that the airflow patterns were almost random. It really just did, depended on who'd done the design and how old the facility was and all sorts of things. So to use a, uh, to use a hotel as a quarantine facility, uh, we came up with the analogy, really, that it was like taking a show pony and turning it into a racehorse um, because it just wasn't designed to do what we were asking it to do. Um, and so as we were bringing these these hotels into the quarantine program in Victoria, we, we were having to do some significant work. Sometimes it involved actually physically changing, um, changing fans to give us more extract. Um, or putting speed controllers on the on the supply fans to slow them down to give us the ability to balance and get the air going in the direction that we wanted to go. And the direction of the air you wanted to go is is not from rooms out to a corridor. Correct. Um, we were working on the premise that the uh, the guests were the ones that were the problem, not mm. not the people who are looking after them. And maybe that's changed in recent <laughs> weeks. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> yes. And then along came Delta. <laughs> Um, but uh, so, so the the idea was that you uh, were try, trying to contain the problem in the room itself, and therefore um, uh, give us the best chance of stopping a spread. Uh, the other thing that we looked at in particular was in Victoria. We made sure we weren't using hotels that had openable windows or balconies, um, because it became very obvious to us very quickly as we were looking at these facilities that. If you've got natural ventilation in a in a building, you can't control which direction the air decides to go. Um, it literally changes with the wind. So um, one of the one of the first things we decided was uh, not to use hotels that had openable windows. Right. So it's it's about the ventilation, but it's also about um, air exchange too, isn't it, Simon? So it's not yes, not not some it's. it's direction and also exchange so what what was the exchange like uh, that you were seeing again varied considerably in australia we're governed by the australian standard 1668 mechanical ventilations in buildings part two and that sets some parameters in terms of ventilation but it's only a minimum ventilation rate typically 10 litres per second per person. And that actually, if you look around the world, at various standards in UK, Europe and America, it's pretty much the same world over. Um, and designers, contractors, suppliers being the people that they are, if, if you are required to beat a standard, nine times out of 10, that's what you do. You don't go beyond that standard. Um, so... Typically, that means for a, if we're talking, still talking hotel bedrooms, you're getting about one and a half to two air changes an hour at the most of 
fresh new air coming into the spaces. Um, and then when so when um, when you start to look at that in terms of an infection prevention control sort of scenario, two air changes an hour is nowhere near what you need to uh, begin to deal with the problem. How was how does that compare with uh, a modern day hospital room? Um, inpatient units wards. Yep, six to eight air changes an hour. Mm-hmm. Two two air changes an hour of which are outside air mandated um but what also happens with that is the the air that you're sucking back out of the room goes through an air handling unit it's passed through filters and then comes back to the space so you've got about six to eight air changes now of air that has had the problem removed from it shall i put it that way um where uh if you take a uh an isolation room that's 12 air changes an hour operating theatres anywhere between 25 and 40 air changes an hour over the table so you can see comparing a hotel at two air changes an hour to an isolation room at 12 air changes an hour significant difference so uh, in a hospital setting where um, isolating patients who may have um, an aerosolized infection in a room that has about 12 to 14 air exchanges per hour with negative ventilation Compared to the hotel, which has a a, a much less um, gradient of direction and uh, a two exchanges per hour at best. Yes, correct. Um, and also, in if you're if we're talking back in in hospital world again, if, if you're dealing with an isolation room, you actually have set pressure differentials between the the space you're trying to contain the problem in and the circulation spaces, and you have another room in between them called anti room. Mm-hmm. Mm. So, so you really have a whole series of controls that prevent an infection coming out of of an isolation room in a uh, in a hotel. You don't have any of that. Well, let's let's change tack completely. Uh, and one of the things that we've we've worked on, Simon, is without going into the specifics, is is looking at other elements of transmission outside the hotel, and and in particular, perhaps things like buses. Where we might be needing to transport um, patients with if infectious diseases, and and I guess cars and taxis similarly. So, I know you've done some work with you touched on the, the computer modelling. Uh, so perhaps if we just use a bus as an example, imagine we've got a bus, and the bus is single story bus, and it's got a an extraction point in the middle somewhere. So that might be a typical sort of bus setup, I guess. Um, uh, talk to us about how do you how do you determine what's happening with the air in that um, in that bus? What do you do as in your role to, to determine airflow and air exchanges? Um, well, obviously, the best thing to do um, is to create a model of some form to try and to try and test and look at these various scenarios. The beautiful thing about buses is there are lots of them. <laughs> so uh, we didn't actually build a model we didn't actually do any cfc work for the buses for the buses themselves we just went and got on a bus um we took um we, we took a theatrical smoke machine um and basically set it off in the middle of the bus and just watched where the smoke went videoed that and uh, then did some various control experiments opening windows closing windows running things at different mm-hmm. speeds um and just sort of uh anecdotally it was quite funny because we the, the bus depot that we went to was was the the depot where they were using the the buses for transporting patients uh, sorry guests to 
the hotel rooms. Um, and uh, so th these things were all parked up in, in the yard and we got one of these buses running. We filled it with smoke with our, um, with our theatrical smoke machine and uh, turned the air conditioning on. And of course, smoke starts billowing out the top of the bus, at which point we saw one of their mechanics sprinting across the yard <laughs> um, because obviously no one had told him what we were doing. And uh, the, the sight of smoke coming out the top of the bus really did quite disturb him. <laughs> but uh, so that, that was quite amusing. But uh, it, it gave us the ability to, to visualise where these things go. And um, yeah, you were dead right, Brett, the... the um, the, the units tend to have a uh, an air handling unit sort of thing sat on the top of the bus, and it's pretty much in the middle. And the extract is all drawn to the middle. So the air is drawn from vents either under the seats or, again, sometimes you see them in, in the... Uh, in the ceiling, just above the above the seats themselves, and then it all funnels its way to the to the middle of the bus. Um, so our um, our analysis basically showed that you were sharing the air very very efficiently with a lot of people. Yeah. Um, so uh, if you did have an infection an infection on a bus, um, you had to watch what those people were doing yeah. subsequently. And and what kind of air change cycles are we talking about for for a bus? Um, for the, the, the single, single decker, big, long, long ones, mm. they were around about 40 to 45 air changes, which wow. was very mm. impressive. Actually, mm. we were quite surprised. Um, so this is windows closed, air conditioning on. Windows yeah. closed, air conditioning on in full extract mode. So not research yeah. mode. But yeah. that was the other thing we discovered, even in, when, when you switch these things to, to full extract or just once through, um, because it's only, uh, a fairly rudimentary flap damper that controls the path of the air, mm. um, you still get about 10% of recirculation. So, so we were seeing 40 air changes in a bus and four mm. air changes would come back to you each cycle. I'm going to ask you a question from two different perspectives here. So one, if you were, I guess, if you were, uh, how are we going to protect a bus driver? And the second, if you're a passenger on a bus and you're thinking about where the best place to sit might be to protect yourself as best as possible. So let's go to the, for the former first. And if you're the bus driver, is it a good idea to open the window or not? No. <laughs> Again, that, that was that was another thing that was a surprise as we were as we were doing the tests um, because the advice that uh, people had been given before we were doing these these tests were, you know, the driver should be driving with the window open you know, as much ventilation near him as possible, him or her as possible. Uh, but what we found is that um, the the air wants to take the path of least resistance. So if you open the driver's window, the air actually was coming from the main ventilation system in the bus, past the driver and out the window. Past everybody you know, else who could be infected. Correct. Mm. Um, whereas if the windows were closed, the vents that were blowing the air at the driver were the controlling source and you weren't getting any air from mm. the main cabin behind the other thing that happens when the um uh when the window is open and we did actually do computer simulations to model this because we couldn't actually get an extension lead that was long enough to get the smoke <laughs> machine and a moving bus at the same time um we uh we found that as the bus moves through the air you get a low pressure region just around the shoulders of the bus just so as the, the front of the bus is moving through the air just behind that front of the bus where the driver's window is is a low pressure zone. Yeah. So again, with the window open, yeah, yeah it gets drawn out through yeah. there. So yeah. uh, very interesting. And what about if you're a passenger? So I'm going to get on a bus in one of my cities, and 
it's that similar to what we just described. Yep. Where should I be? Where should, where's a good place to sit? If people are coughing and spluttering, and you want to think about a safe spot. Is it the back of the bus? As near the back as possible, <laughs> and hold and hold your breath on the way out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent, Phil. I might let you explore. What about taxis and cars? We'll have to uh, we'll have to put a few more rows in the back seat then to to, to accommodate everybody. You um, knew so, there was a reason why, as a young kid, you always wanted to be the last <coughs> the person sitting at the back of the bus. No, that's just because you were allowed, Brett. <laughs> um, so it's the same sort of principles for for cars and, and taxis, Simon. In, in, have you had a look at those? Yes. Um, quite honestly, the smaller the space, the bigger the problem. Um, yeah. And, and one, once you're into, you know, your average Uber, once you're sharing the air pretty much with the driver and you're sharing the air with everybody else who's in there. Um, <laughs> so the it's the duration of the journey at that point that's the defining criterion. If you're using the various modelling scenarios like Wells Riley and things, then it, the, the duration, the time is the important factor at that point, not the actual amount of ventilation, just because the space is so small. Sure, sure. If you're an Uber driver, would you open the window or get the person in the back to open the window? I don't know. I've never done that test. <laughs> um, Certainly keep your mask on. Yeah, yeah I, keep, I, keep your mask on. Yes. From, from what I know, from what I've learned from the buses, what I would probably do is just crank the back windows open very slightly and have the air conditioning on full supply towards me mm. if mm. I were the driver. If you are the driver, yeah. Good tips, good tips. <laughs> Um, we might move on um, because there's a couple of, uh, there's lots of subjects we'd love to chat to you about, Simon. If I could predict the future about 12 months ago, I would have bought shares in air purifiers. Um, so they're a common um, common feature now in, in many hotels and, and schools and everywhere else at the moment. Portable air purifiers, where are they most beneficial, Simon, and, and where are they not going to be beneficial? Okay, if if we could just firstly clarify the air purifier bit. Um, a lot of these things are, are manufactured and, and marketed as air purifiers. So so they've got a series of filters in them, plus they often have an ionization thingy in them and a UV light and all sorts of bells and whistles, which if you're just trying to draw air through a filter and scrub out the aerosols, you don't need. Um, all you need is a pre-filter a really good HEPA filter, well, not even a really good, an, F, an H11, which is the lowest grade of HEPA filter. Just uh, and, and that's all you actually need to what I would call scrub the air. Um, so an air scrubber is really what you're talking mm. about there. Um, the, the beauty about those is, is quite simply, they um, the air that comes out of them has got less in it than outside air. It's, it's purer air than just outside air, if you like. Um, so it's it's scrubbing the air, it's taking out a particle. So if you've got a, a hotel room that's got, as I said before, two air changes an hour in it, and you put one of these um, HEPA filter units in the room and turn it on, typically they'll turn out, turn around about another six to eight air changes in that space. So all of a sudden you've gone from two air changes an hour of clean air to 10 air changes an hour of clean air. And that if you, um, if you, and the reason we were using them in hotel quarantine was basically if you did have an infected guest, and there's all sorts of complicated maths that goes behind this, but it brings the level of contamination down into the room by 
two air changes, ten air changes is somewhere in the order of a factor of eight to a factor of ten in terms of level of of contamination that you get in called what's called a steady state buildup. So it became an easier beast to control if we had an infected guest in the hotel. It's complicated, but you, you get where I'm going. So mm-hmm. so the, the filters basically um, just grab the air and turn it into fresh air is the best way of describing it. And the more fresh air you can have, the better. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm not an epidemiologist, but it is not a surprise to me that we're seeing um, transmission rates in New South Wales that are about a third that of what we're seeing in Victoria at the moment. Because in New South Wales, people have their windows and doors open a lot more. They're outside a lot more. The climate's a little bit nicer. Whereas down here in Vic at the moment, it's decided it's going to play winter again. Mm. And um, everyone's back inside, doors shut, windows shut. And guess what? The transmission rate's going up. Mm. Um, so it's so so the, the the outside air that you can get, the ventilation rate you can get is a really important thing. And that's what these HEPA filters actually help you do. So thinking about, I guess, going back to healthcare, where we started some of the conversation with and, and air purifiers and ventilation, wh- where do you, what do you see as a hospital of the future where we, you know, if you could design, not only design, but if you could, if you have your wish list now or perhaps medium term, long term wish lists of optimal ventilation, what would it look like in a... As, um, as hospital designers, I think we got caught napping by, uh, by the pandemic, I have to say. Mm. Um, if you look at what um, what we normally design a ventilation system to do in a hospital, ignoring areas like theatres, CSSD, isolation yeah. rooms and, and infection, uh, infectious diseases wards, they're, they're different, or burns units, they're different. But your general average, what I would call a general ward, the ventilation is there to do one thing, and that's keep people comfortable. Um, it was never designed as a infection prevention control tool. Um, quite often, the ward or, or the sing- single bed ward, if you've got single bed or two bed wards, the air from that ward is flushed into the corridor and from the corridor, it's then picked up by the return air system and taken back to the air handling units. It's called a corridor return system. If you put COVID patients in a single bed ward and you've got a corridor return system, guess what? It spreads very effectively. Um, uh, um, I was looking at some numbers a while ago for a presentation and there was some, somewhere in the order of 30,000, I think it was, um, transmissions in UK hospitals by people who caught COVID whilst they were in hospital. Hmm. Um, in Victoria, the numbers were quite large, but nowhere near that. But you, you, you see... And, and that pattern, when you st- when you look at it, happened all around the world, and that's because of the way we're designing the ventilation systems. So, hospital in the future, I think we're going to have to look at what we do in terms of how we allow corridors to be used as return air systems. For example, um, you know, if, if we ask for a cor- for a room to be balanced ventilation, then that's what we want. We want it equally supplied with supply and extract air, and and maybe that's something that, that may change or should change um, in terms of future hospitals. The other thing that we're going to have to do, obviously, is make sure that um, the systems have got enough spare capacity in them to allow us to change the direction of airflow. Again, um, if you're designing a hospital these days, we're sp- probably spending more time looking at the energy consumption of the building than we are looking at the airflow patterns because of things like the the energy rating systems and the uh, 
you know, the environmental rating systems that are applied to these buildings these days, they force the focus of the design team away from what I would call a clinical focus. Um, and you know, certainly in the last, last large hospitals that I've designed, um, we have spent longer looking at the energy consumption than we have at the airflow patterns in spaces. And that's wrong. We shouldn't be doing that. Um, that should change. So, Simon, um, just uh, can you talk to us about what's the some of the features of the hospitals of the future should be looking at in comparison to what we've, how we've seen hospitals perform essentially uh, uh, in current times with regards to aerosolized uh, uh, infections? Well, one of the areas that's been interesting is if you look at how hospitals have performed around the world, some of the newest hospitals have been some of the worst performers. Um, in terms of coronavirus infection spreading within the hospital. Um, and that is really down to the way they've been designed. It's the, the fact that corridors are being used as corridor return systems and all of those things. And the continuous drive for energy efficiency and optimising the systems as tightly as you can get them within the regulations. Um, and... Really, I think a lot of the a lot of the reason for that are the environmental rating systems. In my opinion, um, when you're looking at a hospital, a hospital isn't a standard building. It's not a commercial office block. It's a very particular style of building. It's a very particular type of building. It's a factory that makes people better, and that's what we should be thinking of hospitals as. And so, I think the environmental system should be rating them as that, and also rewarding them as that. So, um, you know, if you if you look at uh, some some of the, the Australian systems, there is a credit for air change effectiveness, which is a measure of how well the air is is changed and turned within a room. But actually, air change effectiveness does not relate to infection prevention control at all. So, rating systems for hospitals, should, I think, should have a credit for good IPC. Should should be um, crediting ventilation systems that are really able to control and do what we need them to do in this kind of infection outbreak. Um, so, yeah, I, I, if for a hospital of the future, I'd like to see rating systems, IPC, reward good ventilation design. Interesting. I really liked your comments, Simon, that that um, ventilation hospitals, um, you know, shouldn't the focus should be on the infection prevention angle rather than the comfort angle, and that really speaks really loudly to that hierarchy of controls that we've become very familiar with uh, yeah. uh, in infection prevention at the moment. It's it's um, I really really enjoy that concept. Moving on from hospitals, um, one of the hot topics at the moment is, is also schools and um, use the use of air purifiers in schools or ventilation systems in schools. Can you just tell us a little bit of, about the work that you're doing at the moment in that space? Yes, um, we're looking at, at uh, how we can best use the HEPA filters and those kind of systems in, in schools themselves. Schools are uh, an interesting um, problem because they're probably the largest cohort of unvaccinated people we've got left in Australia. Mm -hmm. um, so so you've got perfect conditions for a transmission event to happen in the first place. But the, the thing that um, that's the biggest challenge with the school is you've got a, a, a cohort of kids all together, and they're all together for three, four hours. doesn't matter what you do with the ventilation system, <laughs> really. 
because if you're with someone who's infected for four hours, um, short of strapping everybody to a fad and not allowing them to move, I don't physically know what the ventilation system can do to help you. Uh Um, What the ventilation system can do is prevent that infection from getting to another classroom or getting to another space. But for those of for those who are in the space with the uh, with the infected person, um, you're then playing the uh, the roller dice game. Maybe a bit more of the the cohorting and bubbling of of uh, classes to minimise potential furlough or transmission related events um, because people are not coming into contact with everybody through a ventilation system. But also. When have you known children to respect yeah. social, social <laughs> distancing? Right. Um, exactly. Yeah. You know, I, yeah. and, and the other thing, and if you look at all the area, because one thing we didn't know is, is ventilation engineers when we came into the pandemic was a lot about aerosols. I know considerably more now. But um, one thing we did look when we were studying is there's a tremendous variance in the amount of aerosol that's produced when you're talking like I am now versus shouting versus singing and all the other stuff, right? light exercise running around so um you're not going to get children who are sat quietly resting speaking quietly Mm -hmm. they're running around they're shouting they're jumping they're breathing hard and so they're generating aerosols at a tremendous rate as well given the chance um so it's a it's a tricky problem which we're working on so direction is probably more important in that setting rather than the putting the the air purifiers into the classrooms uh direction definitely but also um getting the base ventilation rate right up Mm -hmm. um one thing that is working in schools favors is a lot of them are naturally ventilated and you can get some really good ventilation rates with a naturally ventilated system as long as people open the windows and do what they're supposed to do with it Mm. um and again that brings you to the problem that we're now seeing rolling around the world in the, as the northern hemisphere starts to go into winter infection rates are starting to soar um mm. that's not because coronavirus likes cold weather it's because people are inside with the doors and windows shut yeah. um and so you know you could see this becoming a seasonal thing and one of the things that we're focusing with schools is is to try and look at how we can get the best out of the systems that we've got when it starts to get colder Look, great talking about all this, Simon, and, and just touching on the the science of aerosols there too. For those who are interested in le- hearing more about that, uh, if you haven't already listened to our podcast oh, with Lydia Maraska, she talks exceptionally well about how aerosols are generated. Um, typically, hard thing to do when you're doing a podcast, of course. Um, so, look, Simon, it's been an absolute pleasure working with you over the last few months and your team. Um, Thank you. It's not too bad working with Phil either. But um, thank you for all your contributions uh, in this field. There's a lot more stuff to come, a lot more we need to work on um, for the healthcare, hospitals, aged care, schools of the future. So I look forward to to hearing your contributions again down the track. Um, but thanks so much for your time. Thank you. And thank you for having me on the podcast. Thanks, Simon. And thanks to our listeners. Um, until next time, see you soon.